0: Hi, and welcome to the second episode of Nevermind the Ballots. Yes, that's correct. They have not taken away our podcasting rights, and we are back for episode two. On this episode, we've got Green mayoral candidate and Bristol South prospective parliamentary candidate, Tony Dyer, and Bristol Conservative group leader, Mark Weston. You can follow us on Twitter, at Ballots Podcast, and you can rate, review, and most importantly, subscribe on any of your podcasting apps. Today's podcast is incredibly interesting and I hope you will enjoy. So without further ado, let's crack on. Today we have with us Tony Dyer, Green politician, and Mark Weston, a leader of Conservative Group in Bristol. Now, Tony, I'm going to come to you first because you've brought along the arena. I don't feel like I need to give people much of a Pracy or a potted history of this one (laughs) because it's well documented and well known but just to flag where we're at at the moment we've got two potential sites the first one in central bristol the second on the filton airfield site which is technically within the bristol boundary in the brabson hangar so tony over to you
1: thank you um it's often surprising how far back this proposal for an arena first started i mean originally it started uh 15 years ago march 2003 well, there was an idea or proposal for Bristol to become European Capital of Culture, uh, which, in the end, we failed. And as part of that, there was a proposal to build uh, an arena, uh, which would be open by 2008. I think we may have missed that deadline by quite a bit—a decade. <laughs> Despite <laughs> Bristol failing to win the European Capital of Culture bid, um, the arena project was taken forward by what was then the Labour administration, and a site was identified on what is now Reno Island, which at that time was Bath Sidons, and some 30 million million worth of public money was spent to clear that site, which was in the ownership of the Southwest Regional Development Agency. That took us up to June 2007, and then a few months after that, it was suddenly announced that the development wasn't going to go any further uh, because of a lack of money, uh, a big funding gap of about £40 million. It then went quiet for a while. Um, and then a couple of years later, we had, in a sort of sense of deja vu, two arena projects coming along at the same time like we do now. One was the idea, again, of going forward with an arena at Temper Meads. Um, that was brought forward by a group of people, including George Ferguson, who later became mayor. And at the same time, the council was now won by the Lib Dems, and their proposal was to build an arena next door to uh, the proposed Aston Vale Stadium. Uh, for Worcester City Football Club, the stadium at Aston Road didn't go forward, and I think I better not say anything too too much more about that. It was decided that the Lib Dems did take forward the idea of building once again um, an arena at Arena Island. Um, there were still concerns about a funding gap, and I think the Lib Dem solution was to. Go for a municipal bond to raise the necessary funds uh to take the arena forward. We then had further developments, we had the mayor system uh come in. George Ferguson obviously jumped on board with the idea of an arena. We spent eleven million pounds of public money on building uh, a bridge across to Arena Island. And I think a not bridge to
0: nowhere, quite famously. <laughs> there's more than one in Bristol. <laughs> I
1: think the South Bristol Link is starting to be called that as well, isn't it? And eventually, came up with some funding. Come and I think this is an important point to remember: is not all the funding is due to come from Bristol City Council. There was fifty, or well, there is fifty-three million pounds worth of funding as part of the city deal coming from the West of England Local Enterprise Partnership, and that was the situation. But what we then had was a series of delays for various reasons. So, in I think in two thousand fifteen, it announced. Uh, instead of opening in 2017, it will open in 2018. And in 2016, it was announced it will open in 2019. And in 2017, it was announced it be open in 2020.
2: There's a trend developing here. There's mm-hmm. a trend
1: developing. More recently, a pro- separate proposal for an arena at Filton has now come forward as well. The arena itself at Filton... Uh, would look more at private funding rather than the public funding associated mm. with Arena at tempur
0: So you brought up the issue of funding. Now, with the LEP money, that £53 million, that is very much contained to the Arena Island site. So we wouldn't, my understanding is that we wouldn't be able to kind of transfer it over. We're not sure. Mark's yeah. waving his hand. But there is still, having speaking to YTL, which own the Brabazon, they say that they will need at least £100 million worth of investment into the infrastructure around Filton Airfield.
1: Yeah, I think Colin Skellett, who's the chair of uh, YTL, uh, has said in the statement that there would be infrastructure investment needed of about £100 million, and I think he made it reasonably clear that that wasn't something that he expected YTL to mm. to invest. In. It would have to come from public funding. Um, to go back to the £50 million, because I've I think Mark would probably say this as well, there, there is some debate about whether that £50 million will be able to be reused. I know Darren Jones used the MP for Bristol mm-hmm. North West sent a letter around to various stakeholders uh, saying that there might be the potential to, to get some £50 million pounds worth of funding that is currently linked to the arena site to be used at, at Filton. Mm. Uh, but... There's nothing definite about that. So there is the potential that we could lose that 50 million, but there was, there was no absolute certainty either way.
0: So back to the question of location, where where would you like to see it? Where do you think it should be?
1: My my preference um, would be for a site at Temple Meads. There's a number of reasons for that. One of the reasons is an arena at Temple Meads was seen as being a cornerstone of the Temper Quarter Enterprise Zone. And in fact, when... George Ferguson failed to get some £40 million worth of funding from the government in the previous round. Um, some local councillors are very quick to say that not getting the funding was going to have a severe effect and hamper the, uh, the ability of the Temper Quarter Enterprise Zone to be successful. The other reasons why I personally think the arena of Temper Meads is preferable is because it's close to not only Lawrence here, which is the most deprived ward, Uh, in the city, but also it's more accessible to South Worcester. It's my part of the city, so I I do have um, concerns about (laughs) the effects there. And South Worcester does have some of the most deprived neighbourhoods in the entire city, and has has had for some time, and they are desperately crying out for investment, including jobs. I think there's also the opportunity to build something that... Temple Meads, next to a station which is about to go through a major renovation and, and growth. That will provide the opportunity to reduce the amount of car traffic, uh, to improve public transport, encourage more people to walk, cycle, and also to encourage more people to come to the arena for an event, but also stay overnight and spend their money in the Bristol City's night Centre's nighttime economy.
0: So, Mark, if I can come to you, the Tory party locally, you've remained fairly, I would say, fairly quiet on the issue of the arena as to the specific locations. Mm -hmm. I know Peter Abraham, now he's spoken for many years about supporting the Filton site, but I think the last time it was spoken about in the chamber, you were saying the site which offers the best value for money for Bristol. Is is that still the kind of the view?
2: It, it's, it still is, actually. I mean, Peter's been a long-standing supporter of having it at the Brabbers and Hangers. Um, although, when people say, oh, at Filton, it's actually in my ward. Mm-hmm. So it's still in Bristol. I think everyone thinks it's over in the middle of South Gloucestershire. in my but you can, actually you can ward.
0: quite literally see the boundary, though. can't You could touch... Oh, you could
2: throw a stone you and you'd be South over Gloucestershire. the boundary. But in fairness, I'm actually not that far from the boundary where I live. So um, there's a report coming out at the moment. It was actually due at the end of April. And it was delayed because there was a Henleys and Westbury by-election. You go into Perda Congratulations. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, happy with that result. Uh, uh, and you can't make a key decision during what's called a Perder period. So that report was delayed. Uh, another delay, although you would argue maybe in a month, considering we're now delayed 12 years, it, is, is nothing. And what that report is looking at is looking at the viability of the Filton site overall. Actually getting our own facts and figures, not relying on YTLs or anyone's writing anything on the back of a fag packet. They're actually looking at the detail, but also looking at the Arena Island because there is, again, a funding shortfall. Now, Marvin in the chamber said 20, 30 million. I suspect it's more 30, 40 million. Um, and is where does that money come from? So the report itself is going to look at whether we can scale back the design and get it back within budget, or is there a way to find additional finance to bridge the gap? And also, what's the viability, what are the costs and everything else of the YTL proposal at Brabbers and Hangars? And once we've got that report, we'll know the facts and the figures, the nuts and the bolts, and we can then make an informed decision. My preference, I think Temple Island is probably the better site if we can afford it. But if it becomes a choice between no arena or one at Brabazon and the figures stack up for Brabazon, then I would go Brabazon as the the second option. Um, So that's where we are. I want to see this report come forward. Just wanted to come back on two things that were raised when Tony was speaking, if you don't mind. The, the bridge to nowhere, yeah, that it. it I don't think that will be wasted money, in fairness, because we actually own the site. And if you can't access the site, then it really has no value at all. So you're going to have to build a bridge to connect to it. So I do think we'll probably get our money back on that one. I wouldn't get hung up on that. There are a lot of other things we can get hung up on, but that one probably isn't it. Um And the uh, second one is this $50 million. Can we take it from... Temple Meads and move it to Brabazon or whatever. The money is tied to a Bristol Arena project. At the moment, that's in Temple Meads. It's probable that if it went to Brabazon, then Bristol would have to reapply and it would get approved and it would move it. It's not a straight switch, but it's probable that that would happen. I guess we're going to find out when that report is finally published.
0: Mm. And in terms of you were saying, you'd rather see any an A arena yeah. rather than zero arena.
2: What so long ab- as it stacks up.
0: What about if we were in the situation where we took the decision to go for Temple Island mm-hmm. um, and YTL, they still have these brabs and hangars. They said, well, we're just going to go ahead with our own arena here. And we end up with Well, like, they'll buses. be finding
2: £100 million worth of the traffic investment that they don't want to spend. Uh, see, at the moment, they're saying, oh, we'll build the arena, but by the way, you need to put the infrastructure in. Now, if we're going to build it at Temple Island, they can build another one. They could have two. We could be like Cardiff. But they're then going to have to find the $100 million to do all the infrastructure around it, and they're not going to do that. Mm. We're not going to end up with two competing arenas here. Uh, what I would say on the infrastructure around um, the Brabazon option, if it happens, you've got to remember a lot of this forms part of what's called the Cribs Patchway New Neighbourhood. This kind of infrastructure with a park and ride mm. and all that stuff is going in anyway. So I very much doubt it's $100 million of brand new money that needs sure. to appear. I would imagine half of that is already there, and the other half will come from the $50 million if it can port over. Yes. These sums are scary, but this is why I want to see the report.
0: Yes, of course. And we should say that with the new cryptopatry neighbourhood, it's you know it's houses all along the Charlton Hayes and also on the um, actual strip of the airfield itself. There's so much development with going, going on With Charlton Hayes
2: going on there, it's 8,000 houses, mm. uh, which makes my residence in Hembury and which is right on that border, very, very mm. nervous. Mm. I would imagine they are going to be similar uh, residents in the south of Bristol looking at potential Whitchurch developments, or Brisington developments, also, or, vale. or Ashton Vale, um, similarly uh, nervous as well, because these are going to have traffic impacts. Mm.
1: No, I, sorry, I, I think I agree with, with Mark there is whatever developments of, go forward, there needs to be major investment in transport infrastructure. Mm. Um, and even if there's, if there's no arena built at Filton, there is going to have to be some investment in uh, public transport. Uh, I I, 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 and I think the, the other side of it as well is one of the most disappointing aspects uh, locally is the lack of railway infrastructure. In, in, you know, you can almost put that next to the arena about you no, know, um frac about not getting the uh, the you know, the Portishead railway
2: line open or the Embry Loop or Embry Spur, with several mm. Embry Spur is still going though. That's that's doing mm. alright
0: actually. But we're hoping for a loop.
2: Oh, we're always hoping for the loop. We'll continue to push. It. I think Tony and I are united on there are probably very few things that unite conservatives and greens, but railways are probably one of them.
0: <laughs> Tony, if I could come back to you because you um, you were mentioning that about the wider infrastructure around the arena, that there was some concerns that you had with perhaps the Fulton option.
1: Um, I, I think it's. I, I have concerns with the wider spatial planning for for the region. Um, I think there are major concerns about some of the proposals that are coming forward. Mark Mark mentioned uh, or touched upon a couple of them, for, for example, the, the development in Richards. Um now, There does seem to be in in many cases an emphasis on building roads um, and then saying once we build the roads, we'll then start to look at public transport infrastructure. And I think that's what's starting to happen in um, South East Bristol, for instance, with uh, a road proposed to go from its gate up to Richards lane which will then somehow be connected with the south bristol link uh, which seems to increasingly become forget about the metro bus this is you no know, we got our road now we can build on it but i think wherever there are lots of development going forward uh, bristol is a growing city it's one of the fastest growing cities in the uk and there is my concern that we can overfocus on particular development projects and fail to look at the impact they they may have on people's ability to get to work, to go about their daily lives. And we do need to start to look at, we we can't just simply build more roads. There has to be a holistic approach about making sure we have public transport. We have public transport actually delivers what people want. And also that we have public transport, we'll encourage people to actually shift out of the motor car into a public transport or maybe even cycling or, or walking. But at the same time, we have to recognise that there will still be people you will need to use their cars as well. So it's getting the balance right.
0: Because Karen Smith and um Thangam Devonair have both said that by moving the arena to, to Filton, that we will essentially be creating a, a new city centre somewhere in between South Gloucestershire and Bristol. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Well,
1: we, we've had this problem for quite a, a while now with this in a way, almost a battle between Cribs Causeway as a retail centre and Mead Cabot Circus, and it's gone backwards and forwards. Now, Mark would probably be more up-to-date than I am at this, but the last time I looked, there were two potential major investments going one into Callaway Court, I believe it is, yeah. in, in Cabot Circus, and a major expansion at Cribs Causeway. I don't know if both of those are still going to hit. Yeah, I, I imagine think they
2: that are. Cribs I mean- are. <clears throat> the, the the MAL expansion, if people don't know, there's a proposal to increase the size of the MAL at Cribs Causeway by 50%. A new 50%. wing, isn't it? A new the wing whole down new the centre. So sort of rather than it look like a boomerang, it'll be more like, I don't know, a shuriken, a, a morning star kind of thing. <laughs> um, now that, the inspectors uh, made their report and that's gone to the Secretary of State. What we don't know is what that recommendation was. They have six weeks to reply and it went last week. So yeah. we're in that holding pattern, let, let's let see what happens. I mean, you are right, there, there is, there is going to be this pull. Um, I think, strangely enough, for those in, of us in North Bristol, we we probably don't go to Broadmead very often. For us, mm. it's, you know, <laughs> I'll be funny, Cribs Causeway is eight minutes from my house a, if there's traffic. Free parking. You know, free parking, so we just shoot straight there. Um, but equally, there are going to be those in the south that go to some of the facilities at Hangrove or everything else. There are, To say there's only one we say major shopping centre in the city, hasn't been true for a little while. But Broadmead and Cabot Circus is certainly that that hub that I think it, it pins around. And that's one of the reasons that Bristol objected to mm. Cribs Causeway. Um, I have to say, in North Bristol, I think residents are probably split because that's actually where we shop and a lot of us work. Um, so there is this tug between North and South and, and, and how that's going to develop.
0: And in a sense, have... Are we trying to shut the door after the holsters bolted? Because you look at the cribs area and it's got the mall, the venue, it's got the new aerospace museum, there are plans for the ice rink and indoor skydiving centre. It it really is quite substantial at the moment. It is
2: quite substantial, but we're talking about specifically about its shopping offer. That's really where we're we're coming in on. So it's a tug between, you know, um, Cabot Circus and Broadmead and Quakers Fryer and all that kind of stuff. It's the pull between that as a shopping destination and the mall as an alternative shopping destination. And if the mall does increase in size, I could see it start to pull businesses from the city centre. I think
1: the, the other point to add to that is, Mark's quite right, if you, if you live in North Bristol, you do have a much easier choice. You have a
2: choice. You have a choice.
1: know, yeah. no, if you live in Southmead or if you live in West Beyond Trim, you're effectively equidistant between the two sites. If you're in South Bristol, you have to go across the other side of the city, um, spewing out, you know, air pollution and, and, and whatever, getting stuck in traffic, getting frustrated. And and to be honest, that's not just for retail. That's also a lot of jobs that people do who live in South Bristol are in Avonmouth or Seventh Side mm-hmm. and on the Northern Frins. Um And, I, you know, as a South Bristolian, that is my, one of my big concerns is that we had started to recognise that there was a need for investment in jobs and uh, retail in South Worcester, and there is a little bit of concern that that
2: focus is starting to slip away. Mm-hmm. And that's that's one of my real concerns at the moment. And this is probably actually one of the things that unites us when we talk about railway and everything else, because actually we want to see improvements on the Severn Beach line, because that will connect all the way up to Avermouth. We want to see the Henry Spur, hopefully the loop one day, the Henry Spur come forward, because that puts um, new stations at Filter North and Henbury as well to access jobs and everything else at Cribs Causeway. Uh, And then what we'd like to see in the south of the city is, you you know, new stations at Ashton Gate, potentially St. Anne's in Brislington. Rail isn't the cure for all of our ills, but it is a non-road-based mass transit system that I think has an awful lot of potential. So if if we can start to link them up, I think we open up a lot more of our city and sub-region to more people when it comes to finding jobs or making choices about where they shop or live, etc. And
1: also, I think this is, even through I have, been quite highly critical of Metrobus in the past. I do think that there is an important role for Metrobus to play, uh, simply because there are, if you look at the railways in, in South Bristol, they're either in the southwest or in the southeast, and then there's a big gap in the middle, mm. in the middle, particularly around Arcliffe and Fieldwood, uh, which are the most deprived parts of uh, South Bristol, and we do need to have some proper transport system that provides a fast and easy connection, which is why... To I'm the arena, wherever it is. Yeah, wherever where, it may be. <laughs> but that's why I was particularly disappointed about the Worcester link not
2: going forward. and Not yet. Not I mean, yet. They keep saying we, we're, we're going to be scrutinising it tomorrow because I sit mm. on the West combined Authority Scrutiny Committee. We're looking at it tomorrow morning at 10 o'clock at City Hall. Anyone wants to come along? Uh, <laughs> Council House. Mm. Um, so we're going to look at that. I, I think you're right. I don't think Metrobus is a silver bullet. It's not going to be our problems like rail. Um, but it does allow us to reach some of those communities in the east and the south that don't have access to any form of rail-based potential, because we're not going to lay a new track, really, are we, through Bishopsworth and Hartcliffe, no. and we're not going to go through St. George up into hillfields and fishponds. you so, go
0: underneath, though.
2: I'm sorry, do you have four and a half billion <laughs> in your wallet? <laughs> I mean,
1: if Bristol is, is one of the most geologically um, diverse areas in the entire country, um, there are parts of the city... and. No, where it is probably potential to go underground. And that, those parts are the south of the city and the east of the city. But in, I I've think the last tunnel was dug through, uh, through Brewster, um took about 10 years to go less than the mire uh, because it found it was going through some of the hardiest walks. Mm. I mean, we're on a w-
2: wine-raging topic here. We started in the arena I know. and then we went through no, I was, was, was going to
0: say, if I, if I could bring it back to the arena, <laughs> how, how do you think it's been handled by Marvin
1: Rees. I, I think that's, I think Marvin has made it clear that he wanted to see, you No, know, he was concerned about the increase in, in costs. Um, and that's understandable. He, you know, the council is facing um, massive budgetary pressures. I don't think we're going to get into that topic today. Um, we'll come back for next time.
2: Yeah,
1: <laughs> No, he has said all on that he wants to wait until he gets, same as Marcus said, that he wants to have that information in, in In uh, front of him. Having said that, I I think there were some concerns, for instance, when the trip to China to seek investment was made and there was a brochure taken and there was no mention of the arena, but there was a a section about the filter and airfield proposal. And I think that was possibly could have been handed better than that that gave people to think, oh, well, this this is always the time the decision has already been made. I don't think that is the case. I think Marvin's honest about his decision-making. I may not always agree with it, same as I don't always agree with uh, Mark's decision, but I think he is honest and I think he is waiting for those figures to come back before making a decision.
0: And Mark, how do you think it's been handled by the mayor?
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm more than happy to throw stones at the mayor, but this isn't one I'm going to do it on. Um Uh, We just need a decision, though. I mean, we've had a delay, and I think most Bristolians can accept the fact there's been a delay, um, but a delay only goes so far. We say we're 12 years down. I'd like to see a decision before the council goes into its sort of summer recess. Um, That means, really, we're looking at July cabinet. I would like to see that report published. I'd like to see it scrutinized and like us to have a debate as a city, and then I want the decision made, and whatever the hell it is, let's just row in behind it and deliver the arena. I don't want to be here in another 12 years talking about the lost opportunities. Um, so let's just get on and do it. Let's see the report, have the debate. If it's uh, Temple Meads, if it's Brabazon, whatever it is, how do we make the best of it and move on?
1: And also I think add on to that is whichever site is chosen, to also have a discussion about what we do with the
2: other site and have an influence. Because mm. mm. you know, if it goes to Brabazon and it doesn't go to the Arena right. Island... And that forms part of the enterprise zone. So we start need to be attracting businesses in there, businesses with jobs. We need to work out what kind of skills we we need to do that. We need to talk to the education department. So there's there's a, I think a great deal of work to do as well. I w- I would completely agree with you.
0: So final quick fire question: Where do you think the arena will be, and where do you think it should be?
2: Until uh, I see that report, I'm going to be a horrible politician here. I'm afraid until I see the report, I don't know. I think Temple Meads, Temple Island, is the better site. If we can afford it. If not, Brabison is a good backup.
0: Tony, same question.
1: Well, I think I would like to see the site um at Temper Me's used. Um, but it does have to make sense. And it what, what I wanna see is from this report is to for it to be report that takes into account all the options, not just simply the upfront costs, but the longer term benefits for, for Bristol as a whole. Job creation, knock on economy. Yeah
0: wonderfully diplomatic both of you <coughs> <laughs> now then topic two is to do with the constitution of bristol city council now a little bit of background to this these changes have been under discussion for more than a year it's been going 18 on months. 18 months there you go somebody who's lived and breathed it um to put it in very very simplistic terms there have been some dozens of minor changes in inverted commas which haven't caused too much upset Two contentious ones which were voted down earlier this month, which were changing the way the Lord Mayor is voted in, or to bring in a voting system for the Lord Mayor, and to increase the number of the threshold of signatures for petitions. So those were voted down. But the ones which were voted through and are still causing upset are giving Labour councillors a greater number of regulatory committee chair positions and reducing the opportunity for opposition councillors to raise debates. Now, Mark, can yeah. I hand over to you?
2: Yeah, I mean, this will be particularly dry, I think, for a lot of people um, but important. listening. It, but the thing is, it actually is important, because it's the way in which uh, the council holds the mayor to account, in which we provide scrutiny, we represent our, our residents. Because um, we, we didn't elect a, a dictator, that's not the way this works, it's a democracy, so it's checks and balances. And we spent eighteen months ploughing through the detail of our constitution because it was all written when we were there was just councillors. Then we had a mayoral model and it was jury rigged. But no one did a great big dive into how the hell you make this all work. And then uh, we had a we had the council meeting was going to be I think on on the Tuesday the week before I think it was. Um, we essentially had a list of major changes proposed by the Labour Party six minutes notice before a meeting started and this is where they appeared after 18 months discussion brand new proposals came on the table and i think they're damaging to the way democracy works in the city uh, now obviously i'm happy that the petition threshold now this is for those who don't know is if residents are particularly concerned about an issue and this can be on anything it'll be from libraries to to a park cafe we've had uh, then you get three and a half thousand signatures it comes to council it's debated their grievances can be aired. It's a good safety valve, I think, and it helps keep the council and the mayor honest. Anyway, that was going to go up to four and a half thousand, but it's not now. That was defeated. There was then a proposal where the Lord Morality. Now this rotates. The Lord Mayor is the chairman of the council, so all they're woman. the ones. Sorry, all women. All women. Sorry, chair, chair <laughs> of the council, a chair of the council that basically can. Uh, it's their meeting. They hold. They can tell the mayor to answer. They they manage how the debate happens. And to keep it non-political, it simply rotates through the, the groups. So one year, one party has it. So it went from Labour through to Conservative, through to Green, through to Lib Dem, then back to Labour, and that's how it how it works. And actually, it works pretty well. The role isn't politicised uh, because of that rotational nature. Um,
0: and and we should say the Lord Mayor often abstains from oh, the voting. Mayor they do not do always not always abstains. Yeah. I'm yeah.
2: actually not. A, aware of any occasion where they have voted. They they abstain. Um, now Labour's proposal was that actually it should be elected. Now this sounds perfectly reasonable, but Labour have a majority of councillors. Now at that point, Labour will have the law of morality forever. That's what this was a push for. So you would have a situation if these had gone through where the public would have found it harder to get a petition in, and once it got to the council, it would have been chaired by a Labour politician who also is responsible sort of for trying to keep the Labour mayor Honest. Anyway, that fell aside because some of the Labour councillors rebelled, and their chief whip was livid. It was quite entertaining to watch him dive around the council chamber. The uh, the two though that succeeded were in council. You have what's called a golden motion. Now this again rotates through. Used to rotate through the groups and allows us to bring a topic that is of particular concern to us. So the Greens brought the arena. Uh, we've brought things ranging from budget concerns to libraries to rail you bring an issue that you want and it's debated and you know it'll be debated and Labour have decided since they have a majority they should have a majority of these golden motions so now Labour are controlling more of the topics that are going to be discussed at council even though they have a majority and all the apparatus of the whole council they're stifling the way at which opposition councillors can bring forward concerns of their residents and then there's another problem There are 19 positions of responsibility in the council. There are nine cabinet, 10 chairmanships, and the way it works is those 19 are divided up by a percentage. If you have 52% of councillors, you have 52% of the responsibilities. Labour have decided that the cabinet now are entirely theirs, and they will have 52% of the remaining 10 chairmanships, effectively taking 14 of the 19. So altogether, all these changes will stifle debate they limit our ability to hold the council to account. Um, and it just, for me, is a power grab by Labour that will make it harder to hold the mayor to account. Regardless of what party the mayor is, it is now going to be harder to do so. And I think it stinks.
0: So this is the statement which I received from Labour, from the Labour group when I was writing about these changes. So it goes as forward. Yet again, this Labour council has <laughs> brought in forward-thinking ideas to build a better Bristol, while the opposition play party politics and chase cheap headlines. (laughs) Labour have turned around the council we inherited from the previous, and we are focused on making it even more transparent, while the other parties seek simply to keep historical secretive arrangements in shadowy, smoke-filled rooms.
2: Uh, first of all, you can't smoke in the council, house anymore, Fair. so we probably need a newer... Uh...
0: It continues. Yeah. Our radical reforms to the council's constitution will make the council more democratic by handing over scrutiny chair positions to opposition parties, empower backbench councillors through proportional allocation of positions, and bring the whole city closer to how decisions are made. So, in essence, they're saying it's, it's more democratic because they're having opposition councillors taking charge of the scrutiny. How do you react to that? I do wonder
2: whether they had a straight face when they wrote that, because it's hogwash. It's just utter rubbish. Um, I don't even know how how to begin on this. Um, It's funny, isn't it? When uh, George Ferguson was mayor, George used to dismiss any criticism, any criticism of him from Green, Labour, Lib Dem, Conservative, as political pandering, posturing, party politics... And Labour will go, no, no, it's legitimate criticism. Now it's a Labour mayor. Guess what? They're saying, oh, it's party politics. This is absurd. It's it's a criticism. I think the mayor needs to stop being quite so thin-skinned on all this. This isn't going to make it more accountable at all. For example, and we're going to be talking about this later, but the audit committee. Mm. Now, the mayor controls the levers of power. The audit committee, it's not a scrutiny committee, but what it does is it looks at the ways in which those levers of power are pulled. That will now have a Labour chair. I don't think the guard, guarding the guard, should be the same type of guard as the one wielding it. I mean, this is just, this doesn't make sense. This is a plain, outright power grab, and Labour know it. I understand this was controversial in their group when they voted on whether to go forward or not, and it did not have universal support there. Because they know at some point the shoe will be on the other foot, and they should remember that.
0: Mm. Now, Tony, if I can come to you, what's your take on all of this?
1: Well, I find the statement very strange, and his reference to smoke-filled rooms seems as the entire constitution of change. It seems to have been fought up in a smoke-filled room somewhere. Yeah, (laughs) without no proper discussion. I mean, I do worry about some of the statements that are coming out from Labour at the moment. Uh, I think recently. There was a the Labour Twitter account which said that they'd won 100,000 more votes than the next biggest uh, party in an election where only 50,000 people voted for Labour. I mean, no, there Abbott did
2: that maths. <laughs> yeah, I mean,
1: it's, it's, the petition threshold, you know, that, that was came through, all the Labour councillors voted against it. They did in the end. And, and you wonder why bring that forward if you were going to vote against in the first place. And the mayor's selection, as Mark said, it would com- completely and fundamentally change the role of, of the Lord Mayor. And I think in the end, it was only voted down by one yeah, vote, one. which was no, one Labour councillor having the courage to basically stand up and, and vote against the party whip. Four of them, I think, did, oh, right. in mm. fairness. Um, And the Golden Motion thing, it's it tends to, if you go to almost any council meeting, committee meeting, the cabinet full council, the vast majority of the discussions and the debate are all about policies or proposals that are being put, put forward by uh, the mayor and the governing party. You have six council meetings in which there are 30 minutes put, put aside for motions, which at the moment gives each party the opportunity to perhaps get one motion to be discussed to represent the people that voted for them, and 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 we should remember that only about forty percent of the population voted for a Labour majority, No, the sixty percent of them voted for other parties.
2: Actually, about thirty-six percent. And you know,
1: there there is. I, I think there are some Labour councillors. I have a lot of respect for quite a few of the Labour councillors, and I think there are a few of them that are looking at us and we're thinking. What have we done? And I think it is going to come back and bite them uh, at some point in the future.
2: I think I, I, would, I think there's there's a real concern that I've got that actually there's this sort of vindictive street streak starting to appear. Um, I mean, uh, Don Alexander, when he was talking about the law of morality, he said he was fed up about hearing concerns of Southville, Bedminster and Clifton, which I obviously heckled and went, have you spoken to Mark Bradshaw, your Labour colleague for... For Bedminster. Um, You had Fabian Breckels after the councillor for St. George uh, Troopers Hill who was saying after the Westbury and Henley's by-election that he hopes the mayor closes the libraries as a punishment. I mean, this is quite nasty stuff coming to the fore at this point. You look at how Fangham Debonair and the problems she had for attending an anti-Semitism rally. This is not pretty politics. Mm. This is not pleasant.
0: So in terms of these changes then, you think... It goes deeper than, you know, because whenever you have a new council leader or mayor, they, they're flexing their muscles and turning things slightly into the way that they would like to see a council's run. you think that this goes beyond that?
2: Well, I think the mayor does not like taking criticism. I mean, you just have to look at last summer. His language noticeably changed. He went far less conciliatory. Um, and he had, we're going to be talking about the uh, payment to former chief executives in a minute. Uh, so, there was some criticism on that and on his libraries. And next thing you know, every party is dumped out of his cabinet except Labour. So, all that uh, olive branch open hand stuff has gone. And now they've not only been thrown out of the cabinet, they've basically been removed from chairmanships as well. Debate has been stifled. We've got councillors talking about punishment for voters that didn't vote the right way. This is not pretty. This is very petty politics.
1: Yeah, I think I'll add to that. There are concerns, you see some of the comments have been made, in a way, the, the Lib Dems, the Greens and the Conservatives almost get off lightly when you see some of the vitriol directed by members of the Labour Party towards their own mm. elected politicians. Um, and, and my concern is, as well, is in the past, I've looked at some other Labour councillors like Sheffield or Lambeth or Camden and seen some of the stuff that has gone on gone on there and and I've often thought to myself, well, at least you no, know, the people down in you no know, the Labour councillors down in Bristol aren't you no know, don't sink to those sort of levers. And I am becoming increasingly worried. And I do know there are some Labour councillors as well. You you, you no know, are getting vitriol coming their way for making even the slightest comment that is seen as being unsupportive, whether it be unsupportive of Jeremy Corbyn or unsupportive of uh, Brexit or or not Brexit, and it is deeply concerning. And I think you know people do need to to stop and think about what they're saying.
0: Is the, is the issue because Labour is a very broad church, and there is a, a difference between the the left and the centrist parts well, of it.
1: I, all parties are broad church. I mean, mm. I've, I mean, no, I'm not going to go into <laughs> we, we because I the Conservatives are very.
2: Mm. Big differences between massive, uh, massive. Um, the the know, joke in our lot is that we're we're a um, perpetual civil war that occasionally turns its weapons on the enemy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and, and, and and there is also the you no know, the famous saying about you know, the politicians in parliament saying introducing the newbie and saying, no this is where we sit and the the new guy is saying and are the enemy on the opposite side he said no the enemy are behind you the opposite the side is the opposition yeah, yeah. Um, and you do. I think sometimes within political parties, some of the most damaging comments are made within those political parties. And it's almost like, you know, people have put their gloves on back on when they're talking to other members of the party.
2: Because, Yeah, I mean, I think most Labour councillors genuinely, I think, are decent people. I actually get on quite well with the majority of them. I think most of them understand that we, we're still people. We, we have different ideologies. We have different views, but we still go for a pint. We're, we're okay. Um that that seems to be changing. And I, I, I would regret that. We're we're not MPs. We're we're councillors trying to do the best for our city. And I think in order to get the best, you need to have a debate. You throw everything, all the ideas into the melting pot, and if it's good enough idea, if it's strong enough, it will rise to the top, regardless of, of where it comes from. And I just think stifling debate in this city isn't right for, for us, isn't right for the council or our residents this is I have a problem. I think the Labour Party need to get their acting gear.
0: Well, I think that brings us on quite nicely to the third topic, which is <laughs> my offering for this episode of the podcast. So I've brought with me the outgoing, the former chief executive, Anna Kalowski. Now, Miss Kalowski left in September after serving seven months in the £160,000 a year role. Um, she left to look after her sick parents, Um, And she allegedly left with a £70,000 payment in lieu of serving her notice period. So not a payoff, the council is very clear today, not a payoff. Um, We've had lots of talk in the press, um, in the post, on the BBC about the circumstances around this. But Mayor Marvin Rees has pretty much flat out refused to discuss it and has shut it all down, saying the council was acting as a caring employer by letting her go. And that's the end of the matter. But now we have calls for an investigation into the circumstances around her employment and the payment which was made to her, allegedly. So, Mark, can I ask you your views on this?
2: Being careful, sir, I don't want to be sued. Right, of okay. Course, um, we
0: do not want anyone to be sued because of this podcast.
2: No, okay. That, that will, no, I, I, I take that as a kindness. Um, I actually got on quite well with Anna when she worked with us. I, um, I thought she was very good. And... If she, I genuinely do believe she left in order to care, take care of her sick parents. And I think Marvin is right at that point. That If she needs to go, she needs to go and waive her notice period. My issue, though, is whether we needed to pay out a severance package. Because you tend to only pay out a severance package if you fired someone. And everyone says she wasn't fired. Well, okay, she. I don't think she was fired. So if she quit, you don't pay out a severance package. So why was seventy thousand pounds? If it was seventy thousand pounds, this is Mm -hmm. just what I've read. Yep. No, we still haven't had that confirmed. So if it if it was seventy thousand pounds, why was it paid out? I mean, that is taxpayers' money, and that's where I start to get a little nervous about what the procedures were around this payoff. Because I say, if she'd quit, she isn't due a payoff. And if she was fired, then she might well got a payoff. But no one said she is fired, so. Which is it?
0: (laughs) So Marvin has said that the terms of her contract were met. So does that suggest that this was written into her contract?
2: I'm not aware of any job that I've ever left that requires me to receive £70,000 when I leave. I'd probably leave quite a few jobs if that were written into my contract. They'd probably be happy to see me go. Um, But I'm not aware of any... I mean, I haven't seen her contract. I Mm -hmm. mean, that contract's been her and the council. But I would find it extraordinary if it's stipulated that upon her handing in her notice to leave, she would be paid this large chunk of money. And if she's not going to work a notice period, that will be by agreement, at which point she's not paid. If you're not going to work a notice period, you're not paid. This is fundamental. I'm, I genuinely don't get this payment. This baffles me. Mm. And I think because there's so little detail, even if they only went to the HR committee, and explained it fully and put everything for HR, even though that's in private, at least would reassure the political groups in the council that there is nothing to hide. But I think the easiest way to dispel rumour is to shine a light on it. At the moment, there isn't much light.
0: I was going to say, because there are calls for an investigation. These are cross-party calls from the Green Party, the Lib Dems, the Tories. And these have all been shut down.
2: Well, it goes a little bit further than that because this is one of those. It did actually go to, through audit. Now, Labour have a majority on audit, so in order for it to an investigation to have been requested at the audit committee, Labour must have been split on it too. Mm. That's the way this works. So there must be some alarm bells ringing in other places as well. So uh, I think the external auditors are going to be looking at this. I think they're right to yes. look at it because there are there are still questions that I want answered about whether £70,000 worth of taxpayers' money was due to be paid.
0: So I, for my sins, have been to the last two audit committees.
2: <laughs> I bet it was a thrill ride for you. I mean, the best five hours I've ever spent. Um, but just to clarify, that was between the two meetings, not both. Or not sure. One each, well,
0: yeah. you know the last one. It felt it, longer. The last one I dipped out of because, my goodness, it was rolling on. But <laughs> So the one I went to at the beginning of the month, we still had uh, former chair Joss Clark, who's, mm-hmm. of course, a Lib Dem, And that was where this um, mention of an investigation was put forward. So just as a bit of kind of background, um, Richard Eddy from the Lib... Oh, my goodness! Do Do not call Richard Eddy a Liberal.
2: (laughs) Richard, if you're listening, we're very sorry. I'm so sorry, Richard. Please don't
0: send me an aggressive email. Um, (laughs) So Richard Eddy from the Conservative Party, Gary Hopkins from the Lib Dems, and Paula O'Rourke from the Green Party, have written a joint letter calling for an investigation. This was put to the audit committee. Joss was unable to discuss it at the extraordinary meeting because it was extraordinary and it wasn't allowed to go on the agenda. But the suggestion was, and I spoke with her afterwards, that she was under the impression that an investigation had been called. However, last audit committee, they said that the audit did not have powers to launch an investigation Officers had gone away and they said, it's not within the remit. Now, the external auditors, BDO, were there and they said, when we're we're going through these final accounts, we will look into it again. But I got the impression that, you know, not much will come out, essentially.
2: In that case, I'm afraid this will rumble on and the rumour mill will take over. Mm. And this is one of the problems because, you know, knowledge needs to fill the vacuum. If there's nothing to fill that vacuum, then people will make up what they want. And I think the rumour mill is in full swing. I want to see this properly investigated. I want a definitive answer. Mm. That's what I want. And then we can move on. Because we're in, a, we're doing senior recruitment at the moment in the council. We seem to be permanently doing senior recruitment in the council. I was going to comment on that. <laughs> yeah, I'll let you do that one. Then. I'll leave that one. Um, and we just need to make sure that as audit looks at the processes and everything else, that we're doing this right. Um, I have concerns.
0: So, Tony, if I can come to you, what's your take on all of this?
1: Well, I mean, earlier we were discussing about the need to see documentation about the value for money for spending public uh, funds on an arena. And I I think this comes into the same remit. I mean, okay, there was was a personal um, anger to this as well, but I think Mark Swipe, if there was a dearth of, of... of information then the rumor mill uh, will spring into action and it will have a damaging effect on on the council and the council's business but yeah the other thing that also I wanted to comment on is that in my day job I work with companies um, or essentially my worries as a troubleshooter I'm brought into out companies that are having difficulties and usually some of the key ways you identify when the company is in difficulty is um, you have projects not being kept to time or not going on or being delayed. Uh, you have an aversion to criticism.
2: I think I know where this is going. And
1: <laughs> you also have a high turnover of senior staff, as well as having low morale within staff further down the line as they are asked to take on ever more jobs. And I, I think we do have what seems an extraordinarily high turnover of um, people in the chief executive role, but also within the senior management team uh, for various reasons. Um, we do seem to have this low morale within council staff. Um, I've I've spoken to a number of people who work down in the dungeons in the Bristol City Council, and a lot just of them... Just to clarify, we don't actually have dungeons. No real dungeons. <laughs> they just feel like it. <laughs> yeah.
2: Dungeons are more luxurious. Yeah, they're, they're,
1: they're away from, the, you know, out of, out of eyesight. Um, and... I, I think there, there's, there's also in, in terms of, uh, for instance, the council is supposed to have a 10 to 1 pay policy at the moment, um, but that doesn't include contract staff. And I think there's been concerns about the increase in contract staff. And I think there was one recruitment agency that in 2015-16 uh, received about £400,000 worth of fees, and now that's shot up to nearly 2 million. And I think there are... Oh world Wayne's the Anna can obviously pay payoff is one element of it, but I think there is. If if this was me going into um, a private company, these will all be signs to me of a company that is on the verge of failing. I hope that's not the case with Bristol City Council. We've seen elsewhere where local authorities are starting to face problems, including you know, at least one conservative uh, local authority, and those danger signs need to be addressed. We need to have clear transparency about what payments are being made, whether it be for the arena or whether it be for payoffs to, uh, to leave leaving members of staff in order for the public at large as well as councillors to feel confident in, in the way forward.
0: Mm. So to play devil's advocate again, the council line on all of this is we can't go into any detail, we can't tell you anything because it breaches ta- data protection laws. And also I've heard from some people, you know, They are top jobs. They're big responsibilities. That's why they justify the larger pay packets. And, you know, that's just the cut and thrust when you get to the top echelons. Those payments are, are what is to be expected and are probably smaller, well, are much smaller than you'd get in the private sector.
1: But what you also have with top echelon jobs is because you are going to be investing so much money into individual, that's why you have to be so much more clear and more intense about when you select that individual for that particular job in the first place, to see that and be more certain that they're going to be capable
2: of performing that job. I mean, my, my issue isn't with salary. We'll probably debate that another time. Mm. Uh, my issue is simply, was this payment justified? Now, as I've said, I think a report could come forward, even if it's taken in exempt session, which I'm afraid would bar the press and Die. the public from being there. I'm very sorry about that. But at least from that point of view, the opposition councillors would know exactly what happened, how it worked, everything else. And in the same way that you have councillors that are in exempt session on things like the energy company, they, they know what's happening, even if they can't say it publicly. You can still give a steer to your groups and say, well, we've been uh, looked at it and actually there is no problem here. I can't go into detail. You're going to have to trust me on it. At least the politicians side of it, because we we're there to represent the public. At least we're in the loop. At the moment, we're not in that loop and that's causing concern for us and it feeds out into the wider city.
0: Do you think this will be a lasting problem for Mayor Marvin Rees? Is this something when, you know, we come to 2020 and we've got the next mayoral election, will this be brought up and thrown in his face? Is this a significant moment for his
2: administration? Potentially, of the three topics we've debated, this is probably not the one that will appear in 2020. The arena has the most potential to cause damage if this... If no, I think rather than the wrong decision, I think no decision is mm-hmm. going to be the most yeah. damaging outcome. I, I certainly hope, I suspect, I think a decision will be made, but if there isn't one, that'll be most damaging. I think the constitutional anti-democratic stuff will be an issue for him. The Anna, the Anna Klonowski payoff, potentially not, but it does depend on whether we keep seeing this very high turnover of staff. This, this really is quite a problem. Uh, I think it was 18, 19 counting mm. or something and we have lost some incredible incredibly good hard working staff some have just retired in fairness they've just met age and they've retired or just but moved on as, moved as on. is natural for But progression. It, it is a very high turnaround in such a short time scale mm. but i think of the three we debated it's probably the lesser
0: okay and in terms of i know the council at the moment is in is in a recruitment drive is in you know conducting yep. interviews i think this week there are some going on and it has restructured, so we no longer have that chief executive position. Instead, we have mm. four group leaders. Are they called group leaders?
2: I've heard the title changes. There so is a title it is Yes this week.
0: Um, And I will put it on Twitter because I need to go back and check my notes. Now they the top end of their salary could be up to one hundred and sixty five thousand pounds each. And that's 5,000 more than Anna was paid as an individual.
2: I think actually it can be higher than that because I think they're allowed to vary it by 10% Mm. at the discretion of, uh, I think it's the HR Mm -hmm. committee. So it can actually creep up a bit higher than that. Um, I personally think there should be a chief exec uh, is my feel for it. Uh, I'm I'm a historian, so I'm a complete geek, a sci-fi historian for all the records. Um, And if you go to the Tetrarchy in ancient Rome where they had four emperors didn't work so well Mm. i like a clear delineation of who's in charge or someone you can go to um it works on on a pyramid structure and i think if you have someone who is a chief executive then they need to carry on the roman analogy talk truth to caesar they need to have sufficient stature where they can tell marvin if he's doing it right or doing it wrong and i i worry that with the committee you don't quite have that that level of a uh, so we say, civil servant accountability, as it were.
0: And, of course, Bristol City Council right. has previously had um, got rid of its chief executive. I think it was the late 90s where we didn't have a chief executive. And that I believe that was also under a Labour administration, lasted for about two years,
2: and then, then brought again. back in. Mm. Yeah.
0: So, I mean, I feel like we've kind of tried and tested it. But, Tony, what's, I see you've written trust and underlined it on your notepad there.
1: <laughs> well, I've, I think the reason why, why we're in that is because I've been... One of the, the connections between all the topics we've been discussing is that there is an increasing lack of trust both within the council um, and beyond the council, and I think that that is a, ma- a major concern. Is that
0: not just what people levy at politicians every day?
1: I think sometimes there is a danger that you know if if, if we if you watch Parliament in session um, or we you know, whether it be in Westminster or the European Union Parliament. What you see on TV is some you know, you know PMQs, for instance, just looks like a you know baiting uh, agenda. But in reality, when you when you if you look where the work is really done, which is often in these committees that we were talking about before, there is a lot of trust and cooperation between uh, members of a different party, and that's where the work really gets done, not the Hollywood grandstanding that you
2: see at PMQs. I, and so I would on. agree, actually. I mean, just from my personal experience. Um, Henry Brentry has two conservative councillors. Uh, they were Chris Windows. Um, but we work really well with our Southmead council colleagues, and they're, they're both Labour, so Brenda and Helen there. And we get on really well, actually, on cross-border issues, on things like the CPNN we were talking about earlier yeah. and, and all that. And actually, I think away from the main chamber, we do get on, but it has to be built on trust. And that's taking a bit of a kicking at the moment, and that, yeah. that is a problem.
1: And I have you know, To carry on for that, I think I've seen the same thing in Bedminster and Southfield, which apparently dominates the entire city. Um,
2: With Clifton, apparently.
1: With (laughs) Clifton. But um, yeah, I I think Charlie and Steve, the two Green councillors for Southfield, seem to get on very well with uh, Mark and Celia. Celia actually lives in the same street as me, along with Helen Holland. Um, And they work very close together, despite the fact that they are from very different. Parties, And I think there are also instances, and I'm not going to say them now, where there are councillors from the same party, you perhaps don't get on so well and actually get on better <laughs> with members of a, an, another party.
2: Yeah. I actually went to watch an NFL game in London uh, last year with a Labour councillor. We just had a deal. You couldn't talk about British politics. <laughs> the cider still tasted the same. It was fine.
1: <laughs> and I, I think the reality is that, that if you wanted to get into um, into politics to make a name for yourself you probably wouldn't choose local government <laughs> uh, I no. mean, you know, the, the scars on your back i mean you know I, i've i've been accused of being a coward because i've always stood for parliament or for mayor and not for the councillor. that you know I've, I've been told i may have to change that in 2020 we'll mm-hmm. see oh. um but i i think there are there is a danger of the woe way that the city council works and that Element of cooperation, uh, to use a word for my business background. Well, you are, in a way, representing different aspects of politics and what people want to get done. But at the same time, you also have to cooperate and work together. And I've said it before, and I'll say again no single party has a monopoly on good ideas. And if you are going to drive the city forward, you need to be prepared to accept constructive criticism from. Um, all not from, from all quarters, members of the public, councillors, <laughs> including your own side. And the problem sometimes is that if you're the one offering the criticism, you may have a different idea of where it stops being constructive compared to the person receiving it. And I think sometimes it's that personal element that can get in the way of having a constructive debate.
0: Okay, interesting. So in terms of the future of the council and its structure now, how do you feel that that will go?
1: I, I think at the moment, we, Worcester City is, Council is starting to reflect a much more polarised um, political environment at the moment. Part of that is to do with Brexit. Um, and I suspect that as a result of that, oh, I, I think there was that element of it. I think hopefully, whatever the solution is to Brexit, whatever happens, plus other themes that are feeding into that, we might at some point in the future start to get back to a more constructive way of development. At the moment, my my concern is I think we're going to get worse before we get better.
0: And Mark, you uh, shook I, your head at I the head. B word there. Um,
2: I, I did. I I'm I I'm, people will have their opinion on Brexit, for or against whatever. I mean, my ward was fifty one percent Brexit, forty nine remain. I mean, it was close. Um but actually I don't think Brexit is the dividing line in the council chamber. It almost never really comes up. Uh certainly not in the chamber itself. occasionally it comes up in committee and it normally involves a lot of people of all sides rolling their eyes. But and a know, big groan. And a big groan. But it, it doesn't it that's not where the dividing line is is coming for me. I think the divide I think you are right. Yeah uh, that it is becoming more polarized. And actually I I see it if I'm honest, I see it as a uh, sort of the this Corbynite Labour coming forward, I think I wouldn't be surprised if we see an awful lot of deselections of uh, moderate Labour councillors and these are hard-working people and I think that is a risk and I, I think the city will be sad to see them go, even though I'll try and beat them at election time, of course. But um, I, I, think, I think there's a problem there. It is getting a bit more vindictive. It's getting a bit nastier. Um, but uh, still, come and join the political parties and uh, get involved <laughs> in local <laughs> politics.
0: <laughs> well, interesting times ahead and I'm not just saying that because I write about it every day (laughs) and it's always good to make headlines but thank you both very much for coming along and um, yeah (laughs) well I hope you all enjoyed that as much as I did and remember to come back next week for more political chat remember you can follow us at ballots podcast on twitter and you can rate, review, and most importantly, subscribe on any podcasting app. Thanks, and I'll see you next week.